each and every person has a moment in their life which they will never forget. Maybe, like me, you'll never forget the first time you saw your spouse. Or maybe it's a particular gift you received. Or maybe even a pivotal moment in your life that changed you forever. Maybe it scarred you. Maybe it convicted you. Maybe it, or you fill in the blank, you know that moment. The martyrdom of Stephen is one of those kinds of moments. It's an event that I I believe it's chapter 26. Paul will reflect on as pivotal. But it's also something that marked the whole church. That's why it's recorded for us in scripture. It is one of those moments. And it will be a massive turning point in the book of Acts. If you wanted a sort of guide, this would be one of those moments where... If repentance doesn't come, there is a, 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 the dawning of a new era at this very point in time. Hardness of ethnic Israel and the ingathering of all the elect. There is in this, since we've covered so much, let me just remind you of the points of the sermon, at least the last part, that <clears throat> leads to our section today, which we read just before this, Stephen masterfully and really beautifully undermines his accusers by giving them the history of redemption the way that it's supposed to be understood. And in doing that, he displays what was said in Acts 6.10, that is, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He proves his point And does so in a way that should, if any repentance is to come, leave us stunned and astonished. Leave his uh, crowd that he's preaching to with shut mouths and looking for repentance in Christ. But he charges them with these four things in verse 51 through 54. Namely, that they, their fathers and they too, had been resisting God, they are sons of murderers and they are murderers of Jesus Christ. They are traitors because they had rejected God's purposes in their Messiah. They are lawless since they have Moses, but they do not obey him. Now, before we cast too much judgment, how would you respond to that kind of word? Would you be would you be angry? Would you be mad at these charges laid upon them? The literal rendering of our text in verse 54 is, and hearing these things, they were sawn through in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. But this is not the same sort of conviction, although it's a similar wordplay as Acts chapter 2, where they're cut to the heart and they say, well, what, what must we do? And there's the gospel preached and they, there's 3,000 that are led to repentance. <clears throat> this is a different sort of conviction that is happening at this point. This is the sort of conviction that is attached to gnashing of teeth. Actually, formally, the very last account where Peter preaches and there's anger, this is found in chapter 5, 29 through 33, 
Peter preaches to the Jewish leadership at that time in a similar setting. And at that time, he said that Jesus is the founder of salvation, the new way of salvation that is fulfilled in him. He is a savior. He is exalted to God's right hand. And and Luke records their response in the same words, that they were enraged and they were also filled with a desire to lead him off to execution. The only reason that did not happen then and there is because the respected law teacher, Gamaliel, was there and said, huh, you know, this movement, if it's not of God, it'll die. But if it is of God, you might be actually fighting against God, which is actually the answer to the question, the answer to the encouragement. And so they weren't able to carry out their heart's desires. Yet in this text, we find that Stephen's martyrdom is exactly what God had planned. He did not have any, uh, he let the dam break. And here, the hearts of men were not foiled. And yet, before they're done, what's attached to their extreme rage is this phrase that you might be familiar with, the gnashing of teeth grinding of teeth my my son Elias is is rough and tumble and he actually does this all the time when we're wrestling he'll grind his teeth and he'll make this kind of face like a pirate and that's the picture that you should have in your mind we we often think of the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth and because it's attached to weeping we think some like bitter sadness which is true But here, gnashing of teeth actually opens up the door to what all the occurrences in the Bible for gnashing of teeth are, namely that it is a a sign of intense anger and hatred in in your heart. So there's a really good example of this. There's there's a good five examples in the Old Testament. But in Job 16.9... There is Job experiencing the pain that God has inflicted on him providentially, that, that God has allowed to happen at, even at the hands of Satan himself. And he describes the feeling this way, speaking of God. He, God, has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has, here's the phrase, gnashed his teeth at me, my adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Now, God is not wrong in doing any of this, but it gives us this clear picture of that's using an external action to communicate an internal heart level reality. What is filling the hearts of Stephen's opponents is a violent hatred for the man and his message. That's the gnashing of teeth. That's what it means. And it's put on physical display. I want you to hold that for a second because he doesn't tell us. He wants us to hold this and have this as the background as we see what happens with Stephen. Well, now what happens? Verse 55 and verse 56. Read it with me. But he full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened 
and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We're going to spend a lot of time here. But let me point out one thing that I uh, would have you circle. There, <clears throat> not everywhere do we have such clear references to the triune God. A lot of times the Father and the Son and the Spirit will be sort of implied in, in maybe the empowerment that is happening in, in the believers. But here you have the glory of God and Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit. It's a really, really succinct passage for proving the Trinity, and you'll see more why later, but if you want to circle those in your Bible, it's a helpful place to have locked in your mind. <clears throat> but beyond that, what I want to focus on is the text says, full of the Spirit. In our day, you've heard a, you've run into a Christian that described themselves as Spirit-filled, which sort of obscures the, what this actually means, because it doesn't mean what the Scriptures mean about it. They mean they're charismatic and they're Pentecostal or something like that. Uh, What this means, or they speak in tongues. That's not what is being communicated here, of course. What the idea of being full of something is the idea of empowerment or control. Let me give you a negative example to help you. This is Ecclesiastes 9.3. The heart's of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, of course, is not describing what he sees in their hearts. Not at all. He describes what is in their hearts by pointing out, uh, or he, he describes their actions. Evil actions, madness, by pointing out the reality of what goes on of the heart of a person. You can think of Jesus saying the, the, the good man from the good treasure of his heart brings out good. The whole Bible testifies to we are how we act. There's no separation between what goes on in the heart and how we act. The only difference is we can't always see so clearly into the heart, but the Bible points out and Stephen points out here that uh, there is a vindication of who, uh, or, or excuse me, Luke writing about Stephen vindicates what is real about Stephen, namely in Acts specifically when the term is used full of the spirit, almost every time after that there is preaching that happens. There's a witness. There's a declaration that happens that comes from these people. And so full of the spirit shows that the spirit controlling the man is the one who gives the authoritative prophetic announcement, mostly of what Christ has accomplished in the past. Here is sort of unique in all the occurrences because it's declaring Something that is in the past, a past fulfillment, and we'll see that in a second, which is now a present reality that he is getting a a supernatural glimpse into. So full of the Spirit really is pointing to the fact that uh, we have a valid and right declaration of thus saith the Lord that is on the level of Scripture being preached by Stephen at this very moment. 
would have been the case then and recorded for us such that we might glory in these things. Now, let's focus on, on, on the vision itself. What, what does it mean? And, and a lot of people ask, well, why is he standing? At the right hand of God, normally the imagery is of Jesus sitting. And that's the quotations that we've received. So, so why is he standing? What does the vision mean? That's what I want to unpack now. So <clears throat> this may sound very familiar to you. I just want to read it again. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Sounds very familiar to you, I'm sure. Um, Jesus is gloriously standing, exalted at the right hand of God. The, the clouds, presumably, are opened, as it were, and he gets a glimpse supernaturally into Christ standing at the right hand of God. If this sounds familiar, it's because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record a very, very similar phrase that happens in Jesus's trial. And actually, in fact, if you just open up to one of those accounts and you look at Stephen and uh, most commentators, if you buy something on Acts, almost all of them will show all the parallels that happen. Luke is really heavily paralleling what is happening in Jesus's trial. Stephen is fulfilling lots of these things. I'm not going to focus on all of that. But what I will focus on is the phrase that is here. Listen to how Mark 61 through 64 reads. Again, the high priest asked him, Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You will see. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. So why are the people in front of Stephen enraged? And why are the same people who hear almost the same thing, Jesus proclaiming it beforehand, why are they enraged? Both of them at this point hear almost the same thing and lead them off to execution. Well, that is because Jesus and Stephen following Jesus are pointing to a fulfillment of Scripture, which would have made them terribly, terribly angry. Daniel chapter 7. If you want, you can turn there. I'm going to read a portion of Daniel chapter 7, which is being fulfilled right here. And and I will prove that somewhat extensively because... You should hear this idea uh, uh, communicated. This is in chapter 7 of Daniel, verse 9 through 14. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. 
Listen, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So this, this scene, right, the, right before the quotation that we have here, is the picture of the heavenly judgments of God. And if you know the book of Daniel, this is about to uh, come into, we just had a vision of, of four beasts. And because the books are opened and judgment is being had in the courtroom now, now these beasts are judged. Listen, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Judgment done. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. But their, their, their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now listen to this. This is where the quotation comes from. So books are opened. Dominion is had by others. Now the Son of Man is going to come and receive something in this judgment. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, clouds of heaven, clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. Clouds of heaven, Son of Man. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. And was presented before him. And him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus says, you will see, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a clear reference to Daniel 7, where the Son of Man in a cloud comes up and is presented before God, standing. Recall how Luke frames his whole book. Acts is trying to show us what is fulfilled. You can go to Psalm 10, you can go to Psalm 2, you can go to Psalm 16. We've already done all that stuff. But here... Luke frames his book, let me remind you, by showing Jesus speaking about his kingdom and the power to restore it. They ask, are you going to restore it to Israel at this time? What they didn't realize is that Israel is from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's not mainly an ethnic people, though that is true. Paul says, all, not all Israel is Israel. No, Israel, the Israel of God, which Galatians 6 speaks of, is the church. It is God's people, elect by him. So this kingdom, which he has the ability to restore all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all people, every nation. Teach them to obey the Son. <clears throat> what happens if they don't obey the Son? They perish. They get judged. They fall to destruction. Luke frames his book in that light. Even then, beautifully, the very first scene that we see is we see Jesus ascending into heaven. And what takes him away? It's a cloud. <laughs> a cloud takes him on up into heaven. 
There is no other parallel like it but in Daniel 7. And then we hear the first sermon that is preached. And Peter says, Psalm 110, Psalm 16, it's fulfilled. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. He has all authority. He has all power. He's seated on David's throne. This kingdom, this dominion is his. He has it now. He's the reigning king. That is the message of Acts, folks. Jesus fulfills Daniel 7. That's why they're mad. Because the one who has all authority and power also has the right to judge them. If they don't repent and he is the king, they will stand judged. They don't believe that. Not for a second. They reject Christ. And they know that this is their condemnation. They hear it. I mean, he's had the strongest of words. (laughs) You are uncircumcised in heart. You're a murderer, you're murderers, you're traitors. You will be judged. It is the strongest call to repentance. What Daniel 7 fulfilled means is that at the ascension of Christ, Acts chapter 1, he receives a kingdom and therefore the authority to judge all nations and to bring them under his dominion. Jesus then, you can go read Daniel 7, then gives the kingdom to his saints. Our children are are memorizing Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has, nice and loud. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In the future? No. No. That's now. That's a, that's a present reality. The kingdom exists here in this world, and it's Christ, and he rules over all. All those who are aligned against him right now in this time where he's preaching is the covenant-breaking Israel, and they will be judged. If they don't turn, this will be the thing that leads to the 70 AD destruction of the temple, which was fulfilled. They want to kill him because they know that this claim is exclusive for the Messiah. And Stephen says, Jesus has it now, right now, not in the future, future millennial kingdom. No, now. So what do they do? Verse 57, 58. Yeah, well, kind of. Metaphorically, they crucify him, right? (laughs) They stone him to death. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and literally rushed with one accord at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So you remember, he's on trial. There's a, the high priest is the one who asked him the question. Yet there's no sign here at all of a a verdict and an orderly conduct and a sentencing. No, 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 no. This is mob justice. This is injustice, oppression, lawlessness. The dam has broken. The, The anger has overflowed its banks. And now these people are in one accord in their hatred towards Stephen and the message of Christ where they violently and willfully 
sin in murdering and killing him. This is no just execution. This is abominable, willful, banded together sin. Sinners linking hands and defying God. High-handed rebellion. Now, we should note that they, they cry out and they cover their ears. What's the significance of this? Of, of course, it's not just physical. <clears throat> when we run across things in the Gospels and when we run across um, physical actions, even the physical healings that happen, point to a spiritual reality. Uh, Luke doesn't just remember, okay, and what happened there? Oh, yeah, and they yelled out and covered their ears. He doesn't just randomly throw in details that he might like that juicy up the story for us. Rather, he wants to give us a message. This actually supports uh, just the same way that gnashing the teeth did. It's an outward, external action that supports what is happening inside their soul. The reality of crying out, drowning out Stephen's words and covering their ears as they were covered over with spiritual darkness, spiritual deafness. They were dull of hearing. You can think of Jesus saying, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. They don't. And they cover their ears to show that what fills them is, is they only want to hear something that assuages their guilt, that affirms their guile that applauds their own hypocrisy. I think one of the wonderful texts that illuminate this in a, a theological way is Ephesians 4, 18, that describes what a state they're existing in now. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So when the word of truth rings out, their corrupt heart wants to just drown it out. So that's what they do. <clears throat> now, we also see Saul, who we know as Paul. But they are going to stone him. And we meet Paul in his former darkness. It only gets worse for him for a little bit after this. And at this time, he's called Saul. And the scene is striking because Saul happily stands guard of their outer garments or their coats. He's like, hey, you know, it's kind of hard to throw in a, in, a, in a stiff coat. Why don't you lay that down so you can throw that stone harder at him? That's the sort of picture that we have. Make sure that you can get a full wind up as you murder this man. That is the sort of darkness that is in his heart. He is there, it says in Verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul approved of his execution. This is the picture of that. He was approving of it by standing guard for their coats. Saul is guilty of what he would write later in Romans 1.32. Though they know God's righteous decree, they not only... Uh, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they, like Paul, give approval to those who practice them. He may not have thrown a stone, but 
in an unjust lynching to give approval and help people go forth with that is maybe even a greater sin. They may have been carried away, uh, but he knew and still he approves. This is the sort of thing that we see at large in our culture right now in the sexual revolution. There may be churches that don't practice sexual debauchery, but they're willing to promote the agenda of it. There are businesses out there, people out there that'll put a bumper sticker with an equal sign or a slogan, a window decal in their business. They will sell immoral products because they're ultimately concerned about a bottom line. They don't want to guard the door and say, well, we're not going to sell this and there are people who vote for these type of platforms that enshrine that kind of wickedness into law. All of such are under the prohibition of approving of evil. We ought not to be like Saul in that way. Anything that is sinful, we cannot agree with. Now, <clears throat> it's hard to estimate. This is the last part of our sermon it's hard to overestimate the significance of this particular event and the impact that it would have had on the early church. I mean, it, it literally changes many, many things as we go. Both, it, It's the beginning of a new theological theme that comes. It is the point where they start to get scattered and a larger persecution arises because the leaders ain't going to do nothing about it. They're like, ah, we'll turn a blind eye. Throw one for me sort of thing. Like, it gets pretty bad here. This is a turning point. And so it would have struck heavily in their minds. But what is amazing is Stephen's sort of character that comes out here very loudly. We recognize that there is a striking parallel in what he cries out while he is getting stoned, very similar to Jesus. Verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. In crying out, he sounds almost identical to Jesus. You remember Jesus said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That is from Psalm 31, 5, which it sounds like Stephen, though he says it's slightly different, is also following that. Psalm 31, to summarize, Psalm 31 in a whole is in essence a psalm that emphasizes that in the midst of being unjustly condemned and persecuted by other sinners, the psalmist trusts God to vindicate him. Isn't that the perfect thing to say? Stephen knows what Jesus' verdict is. He knows that his faithfulness ends in, well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't matter what sinner wants to kill you for it. It is the sure confidence that No, God looks at this and he approves. I stand before him and I fall before him. Lord, receive my spirit. Now, what is even more striking is that Psalm 31, 5, uh, you would have heard something like, Lord God, throughout. That's what you hear, Lord God. But Stephen changes that slightly and gives us a wonderful testimony. He says, Lord 
Jesus, receive my spirit. This is nothing. No matter how great the Muslims might say that Jesus as a prophet was, no matter how great a man anybody might actually be, this transcends anything that could be ever said about a man without being blasphemy itself. It is undeniable that this statement is only fitting for God. Jesus is God. And so righteously, Stephen says, God, Jesus, receive my spirit. Thus, it is so we have a testimony, a, a powerful testimony to the deity of Christ. God alone, Yahweh, in Psalm 31, which is quoted and applied directly to the Messiah, Jesus, who is God over all. The Christ, the eternal Son, came from the Father down to earth in order to redeem us. And as he ascends to heaven and takes up his rightful seat of authority over all other powers, is also exalted to the place of God so as to receive us. That is where we go, even though it's before the resurrection. When we die, we go to be with Jesus presently until the resurrection, which is an even greater day. It's levels of goodness. When you die, it gets better. And then when there's a resurrection, it gets the best. No greater than that. Lastly, Here's the last thing that I want to pull out before we focus on application. We ought to marvel at Stephen's response because he desires not to retaliate against them, nor to have vengeance on them, but but this is an act of intercession. He wants to intercede before them. We must not make this mistake, which is very common in my experience, maybe in yours. We must not make the mistake that Stephen is asking God to arbitrarily dismiss sin. God does not and cannot do that unless we want to proclaim God as an unjust God. He does not do that. He satisfies his wrath on you in eternity in hell or on Christ and he forgives He forgives no sin in any other way. It is a payment, a sacrifice. But what Stephen is doing is not requesting God to be unjust. Rather, he's petitioning God to just stay off judgment, have a little bit more mercy. Don't come down on them in your full wrath now. He knew that that was going to happen in history, and it, it did. The Jews were slaughtered mercilessly uh, up to the point of 70 AD and following because they had disobeyed God in rejecting their Messiah. Stephen petitions God to extend mercy. He wants them to know Christ. He wants them to have time that they might repent. He, I think, reflects Paul's attitude in Romans 9, the most extensive and almost obnoxious treatment of God's sovereign election, which is also paired with uh, the statement, he has unceasing anguish in his heart for his kinsmen. Stephen loved his people, 
It's, a good, it's good and right to have a love for your country, to have a love for your kinsmen, and want them to come to repentance and come to be saved. Though the will of the Lord is done. Now, <clears throat> I want to draw out what I'd like to call an apparent paradox. This is our application. An apparent paradox is where we see two things which seemingly are or appear to us to be contradictory or opposed when actually, in fact, they're really fitting. They, they actually go together and they're true. However, even though on the surface it might seem that, that there's a contradiction when we put verse 51 through verse 53, you stiff-necked people. I can imagine that it's what it's like. Maybe it wasn't as that hot and intense, although it, the words itself are that hot and intense. It immediately suggests uh, one thing to us, where on the other hand, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It suggests a totally different thing. Uh, how do these things come together? On the one hand, he calls them stiff-necked, uncircumcised in hearts, traitors, etc. And then on the other hand, he's asking in intercession that they might be forgiven, that they might come to Christ, that their judgment might be stayed so that they might find mercy and refreshment. We tend to think of harsh rebuke and correction as something that is opposed to love, okay? We, we tend to think of you stiff-necked people to be a, a, opposed to, to love when in fact the Bible clearly defines serious, intense, even drastic correction as love. It is loving, <clears throat> For example, excommunication, if someone's walking in open rebellion to Christ Jesus, saying you must repent and they are to persist in that to excommunicate them and say you're not a believer if you continue to act in this way. You, you cannot love Christ and, use an easy one, commit adultery on your spouse. You must repent of that, otherwise you prove that you never knew him. That leads people to repentance. That is a serious, intense, albeit I don't want to do it. None of us want to do anything like that, though we must at appropriate times. That is a, that is a loving judgment. That is an act of love such that the person might be awakened to their sinfulness and turn from their hardness and find Christ. This is love on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I think we should rightly define the second part. Pleading for God's mercy on their behalf, intercession, should be called compassion. Compassion, sympathy, even. So when we define things biblically this way, we have, we have two things that are absolutely not contradictory, but absolutely necessary, rather, to hold together. We, we cannot be just truth-speaking people with no compassion. We have to have love and compassion. They meet one another. They, they must be held together. In fact, it'd be strange to see one without the other. It would be unfitting. It's as fitting for us adults 
as steak and potatoes. It is, for you kids, it's as fitting as chicken nuggies and fries. Gotta go together. And barbecue sauce and not ketchup. With the chicken nuggies and fries. Now, let me try to bring this home a little bit. Why does compassion, the second thing, pleading for their forgiveness, why does it exist? Don't know if you've thought about this. Compassion exists because of failure to the law of God, which we call sin. Compassion exists because sin does. No compassion is needed where sin doesn't exist. Sin is the reason, it's the spur of compassion. And we actually live in a generation which sadly many churches have embraced the culture's understanding of this and call it being non-judgmental, non-judgmental. We empathize, which is I would submit to you as a sinful thing, we empathize with others to the neglect of love. We, we empathize and we lose our grip of truth, of the reality that the reason people hurt, the reason people feel bad, the reason fe- people feel <clears throat> um, judged is because they have fallen into sin. And without an acknowledgement of sin, there's no real compassion. There's only suffering with a person with no remedy because there's no fix for the misery. No more. Not unless there's a solution. The only solution to our hurt. Would hurt exist before the fall? No. Does tears and weeping, does... The feel of judgment exists before the fall? No, it does not. It only exists because we live in a fallen world. The reason we hurt, the reason we are needing compassion, the reason we feel judgment is because we are judged. The only way to give anybody real help, Christian help, is through saying the answer, which is in the gospel, which is you have sinned and there is a remedy for all of your sin. The reason you feel bad is because you've fallen under the judgment and condemnation of your sin. I want you to know the power of healing. Truly. Otherwise, all we do for non-judgmental is we fortify people in their sin. Tell them that it's okay trans person I I empathize with you but I'm unwilling to tell you that you are lost because we don't care about their remedy if we do that same thing with any of our sin small big we must never lose a grip on truth and lest we be calculated Robots with no, 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 no actual reality. You have to do the other thing, don't you? You have to tell somebody the truth and then go, 
And I need that just as much as you. I may have not fallen into the same sorts of sin. And some sins are, 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 are more horrendous than others. But nonetheless, we all fall under the condemnation that, of sin. And so there's always room to have compassion, to plead for them, knowing that somebody, our families, our friends, somebody pleaded for us before God. So let us be like Stephen, able to share the hard word out of, out of true love in your heart so that people might open their eyes. And then, you know, Stephen knows he has sinned against immediately after they reject it. And he, in his mind goes, I expected that. Hard words and big changes. <laughs> That's hard. Sometimes it takes cataclysmic events like we'll see Saul (laughs) knocked off his horse as it were and confronted by the Lord Jesus later on he's able to have compassion with sinners who don't turn on a dime he's not so righteous and holy as and, and unaware of his own sins to think that the instant you tell somebody the truth they should turn around right now otherwise uh if we only held that standard to ourselves, right? Every time we heard a word of truth and, and, uh, and anyways, uh, all this is is just a recognition that <clears throat> we need both sympathy to be able to suffer with and, and bear somebody else's, understand their own sinfulness since we are sinners, but not refrain from the truth uh, because without it, we cannot hold a real olive branch out to our, our hurting neighbors and friends and family members. If we want what's best for them, these two, this apparent paradox must be held together. Hard words and compassion. Long-suffering and, and willingness to, to be the unpopular person and say what is true, such that we uh, might all grow up into the knowledge of Christ and be transformed into his likeness. That said, let me just close our time of the word here in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we are so thankful that having heard the gospel so many times in our lives previously, or words of truth you have not condemned us to destruction, but you have had even those who stand in the way and have mercy and who both tell us of our wrong and point us to the living healer, Jesus Christ, the one who saves us from all of our misery and our sin. Thank you for the compassion that we have seen in the church And in our lives, I pray, God, that we would be a model, just like Stephen and of Christ Jesus himself, who are willing to be bold and proclaim people's sinful folly while also never neglecting the compassion that is required from the glorious compassion of Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.